I've had a vision. A monster is coming. Huh? Which one? No, wait, let me guess. Um, Deidre? Uh, no, no, don't tell me. Uh, Rodan? Um, uh, the turtle thing? That's three guesses. That, my friends, is how Godzilla is introduced in my redubbed Godzilla movie called The Godzilla Movie. It's an appropriate introduction, and it's delivered by the communist princess who's showing off her gifts of prophecy to ace television reporter Bunny Toyota. A little while later in the film, the princess gets a little more specific in her predictions. Centuries ago, my people invented communism. The people of my planet were happy, and if they weren't happy, they paid dearly for it. Then the monster Ghidorah appeared. At first we thought it was a Japanese midget in a rubber suit, but soon she had destroyed our entire planet. Now she has come to Earth looking for a place to nest. Where would a three-headed space monster nest, you fool? Anywhere she wants to. In case you were wondering, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, if you've listened to episode six, you may recall that the princess is a major character in this movie. She is actually uh, saved from an assassination attempt by space aliens and then returned to Earth as a, apparently as a communist. It's, nobody really knows why, but that's the way the movie plays out. All you need to know for now is that the princess is the sister-in-law of Bruce's boss, the police chief, and the police chief was voiced by my brother Dave, whom I'm going to be interviewing in a few minutes for the show. So in order to introduce my conversation with Dave, I've decided to play the scene in the movie in which Bruce Toyota and his boss, the police chief, are first introduced. Here we go. Well, sorry to keep you waiting there, Bruce, but I got a big favor to ask of you. Well, what's up, chief? Uh, I think I've told you about my sister-in-law, haven't I? Uh, the uh, princess of princess? Uh-huh. So we get this letter the other day. It says she's flying in for the weekend. The only thing is, the wife and I are going to be out of town. Uh-huh. So, anyways, we're looking for somebody to fix her up with for the weekend. Oh, no. Okay, but you don't find too many girls these days are willing to go Dutch treat. But I hate girls. You know that. Good, Bruce. I don't mean to be a buttinski, but you're already 30 years old. I take it from me, you don't have too many good years left. But I think you ought to give girls a try before it gets too late. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess I could take her bowling. What kind of things does she like? Wedding bills and lots of kids. Huh? She's looking for a husband? You pick her up at the airport in 30 minutes. There, so now that you know Dave's voice, I'm going to jump into our interview as we're talking about one of my favorite themes on this show, recurring childhood nightmares. I had, you know, when we were talking about recurring childhood nightmares, I, I, could have sworn it was Matt who had the nightmares of being chased by ape men just because he's the family Bigfoot, uh, yeah. Bigfoot enthusiast. That would make sense. But, but that was you. Well, I, yes, I did have one. Uh, it was a recurring thing. I, I did talk about it that night when we talked about those things. Mm-hmm. It was creepy. <laughs> so tell me about the dream. Uh, well, it was, I had the sense that it was an annual dream. It was mm-hmm. recurring. 
Um, I had the sense that it, it like happened the same time every year, which I could have been totally wrong. I was mm. a little kid, but it was, that was weird because the dream was about an event that happened annually every year, obviously annually every year in big bend. And we all knew about it. And it was this thing where the village of big Ben would be overrun by crazed ape men. Wow. And yeah. And, um, and I kind of remember them having kind of shirts, like they were werewolves <laughs> that they'd transformed. Like they had, wow. you know, rag, ragged cutoff pants and shirts. Uh-huh. But we, we would always be, you know, we had the big old Econoline vans with the barn doors. We'd always be piling into the side doors of the vans. Uh-huh. And mom would be there in the door, you know, shuff, waving us in, get in here, you guys. And I was always the last in my dreams. I was always the last one in, and they were always right at my heels. There was one just about to grab me, and I would get in, and we'd shut the doors. And of course, someone would have left a window open, and arms, you know, hairy arms were reaching in and grabbing at us. But then we would drive. Dad would drive down to uh, the park, the you know, uh, River Park, uh-huh. the uh, Lions Club Park. And back in the back of the park where that old, uh, where they eventually built the snowmobile track, everyone in Big Bend would meet up down there. They'd all drive down there. And that was safe haven. It's only two blocks from our house. (laughs) But that was safe. And the ape men wouldn't get us. And everybody in Big Bend was there. And then the dream was over. So all, what, 1,128 people living in the village of Big Bend were all there? We're all there. And and I recall it being kind of a party atmosphere, like people were barbecuing and like, we made it again this year. Nobody got caught. That is freaky as hell. It was weird. And they were were scary. I mean, I was scared to death. And I was always late. I was always, mom was yelling at me to get in the car. (laughs) Running down the back steps from the back porch to the car, wow, into the van, and then we'd be, you know, hurriedly shutting the barn doors of the van. Uh huh. Yeah. Pretty wow. funny, but it all it it seemed like to me, it, it was a dream about a recurring event that happened once a year, mm-hmm. and it seemed like the dream happened once a year. Uh huh. Kind of semi on a scheduled basis. I could never, you know pinpoint that or or not but that's the way it seemed to me as my little boy head well i don't want to make it even worse than it already is but i swear to god when you were telling that story i really thought you were leading up to and then they chose a child to sacrifice (laughs) because that's the kind of village it was no that never happened at least i don't remember it i don't remember it could have been and i blocked it out yeah you could be blocking out well that's a hell of a dream that's very vivid thank you for going going over that i would love to know like did the torn up shirts say anything (laughs) like like they were on a team or something or they had special man beast uniforms right no, it was just like they were um, like universal movies. The werewolf, you oh, know, yeah. he had a torn shirt and half his pants were missing. Uh huh. It was like that. So they were that, they were ape. You know, they were ape heads, but they they were like ape men. I don't know. Uh-huh. They were hairy biped creatures. 
I, I was surprised that you didn't needle Matt with that hairy biped creature. I am. I, now that you mention it, I am surprised too. Our little brother, Matt yeah. used to pronounce biped biped. So Bigfoot, instead of a her furry biped creature, he was a furry biped creature. And we always used to laugh about that all the time. I don't know. I don't know how I missed that talking to Matt. I don't know how he missed it. You have to get him back on another episode. Wow. I guess so. Well, he seemed to like it. Maybe he, maybe he would do it. <clears throat> so, but I also thought that whole recurring childhood nightmare thing, um, I was surprised and I still am that like five out of the seven of us siblings yeah. all had scary recurring yeah. childhood nightmares and they all involved something coming after us. In my case, it was UFOs. In your case, it was ape men. And mm-hmm. I know somebody else, I can't remember who, one of our sisters, I think it was tornadoes. Yeah. I th- and I, either more or Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we grew up kind of in tornado alley in, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. We, we, we would almost always have at least one or two tornadoes every spring or summer. Yeah. So those were like, those weren't imagined fears. That was a real yeah. fear of yeah. the tornado and, you know, huddling down in the basement and, you know, sitting in the Southwest corner of the foundation or wherever it was that we sat. I I remember, um, you know, dad would always be the brave dad and he'd be up at the top of the steps with the door open, looking at the Southwestern sky. And I, I I can kind of picture his silhouette against the sky, him standing up at the doorway. Wow. Looking out. That's a vivid image right there. That's cool. I don't remember that at all. I was probably cowering in fear. Uh, I'm sure I was too. (laughs) Yeah. Those were some scary times. So, all right. The, the recurring nightmare thing is interesting. So I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know anything about dream analysis. I don't know if there's any sort of symbolism to the fact that we were all running away from things that were attacking us. Maybe every maybe everybody growing up had that dream. If any of my listeners have had dreams like that, man, contact me on Twitter at Mark O'Connell underscore one and tell me about your recurring childhood memories because I want to know about it. Recurring childhood nightmares, I mean. I want to know about it. Okay, so also then that leads into the second question that I'm now asking everybody who appears on the show. And that is, was there a particular monster or creature from TV or movies? that scared the living shit out of you when you were a child and that has stuck with you for the rest of your life? Well, I think it's one that you've talked about and, and I don't know if um, that I'm associating it this way because you've talked about it. I, I remember it being quite scary and it was the one that was the, the kind of plasma creature. I think it was an outer limits. Oh yeah. Yeah. Where he kind of came from, he got lost. I think you've talked about this. He's maybe lost in a radio transmission or something. And he, he comes in physical form into this place and he's kind of walking around, but he's got this really kind of gelatiny, glowy yeah. face. Yeah. The galaxy being that's the okay. one. Yeah. Was that, was that outer limits? Yeah, that was the that was the pilot episode of The Outer Limits in my memory. So this must have been the two of us. I don't remember you being there. You may not remember me being there, but we must have both been there. Mom was watching my memory. I was three. I mean, you were five. You probably have better memories of it than I do. But I just remember mom watching this pilot episode of The Outer Limits and just being scared to death and running upstairs and hiding around the corner and telling mom that I wouldn't come out again until the monster was gone. And 
like I said so, before in the podcast, I think instead of turning, instead of switching the channels over to like the Jackie Gleason show, right. I'm kept watching the outer limits. Yeah. Here kids, let me continue <laughs> to terrorize you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I remember the circumstances if I was there or not. And maybe I, I mean, I remember that episode and maybe and uh-huh. probably saw it several times afterward, but, and I remember I've heard you talk about it. So maybe it's by, you know, f- creepiness by association but <laughs> i do remember being very scared by it when i saw it when, whenever i saw it the first time I, I do remember it being so let's talk about the home movies <laughs> yeah so we're, we're going to talk about three home movies you've already heard you've if you've you've listened to matt and i talk about the godzilla movie yeah i i don't know how well those audio clips from the movie came across in in the final recording well i i rewatched it <clears throat> excuse me just last week mm-hmm and uh, it was quite funny. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, yeah, no, no, it was it was very funny, and it was I was just uh, astounded to think about the amount of effort that you put into that thing. It, it, you know, when you see the whole thing and realize how long it is, uh-huh. and how much overdubbing that you did, we did. You know, I I didn't. I, I recognize myself as that police sergeant, but I don't. Mm-hmm. I know, and I may have been an incidental voice here and there. So I did. You know, it was part of it. But you and Matt, <laughs> I mean, it had to have been a labor of love. <laughs> it was. It was that was long and a lot of effort. And you know, I'm sure re- watching it, figuring out goofy dialogue that's going to reasonably sync with the lips and going to make sense in the long term. <laughs> the full plot line, you know, I, I was pretty amazed to think about uh, the effort that went into that. Uh, and, yeah. and then when you talked about the, um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't remembering the, you know, the physical limitations of the eight millimeter uh, strip of film and the, and the, the voice track or the magnetic strip. When I well, that, I think about that sometimes too, and I also think about how much money I sunk into that. For I don't know, I'm I can't remember how old I was. I'm having a real hard time placing it in my in my lifetime timeline. It was either late teens or early twenties. It just goes to show you how absolutely little I had going on in my life at the time <laughs> that I was able to spend that much time creating creating that that redubbed movie. So you you were the police chief, yeah. So yeah. and you had your your you set you set up a, a particular narrative thread in motion because the police chief um, had a sister in law who was a princess, the princess of Blincess, and the princess was coming to Tokyo to spend the weekend. Right. And you, the police chief, you didn't know what to do because you and your wife were going to be out right. of town. Right. Right. So you tried to set my character, uh, Bruce Toyota, up with the princess. And I didn't want to be a Budinsky. <laughs> exactly. Yes, you got it. <laughs> and yet you were a Budinsky. I was a Budinsky, a big Budinsky. Because for some weird reason, there's just a moment in that scene. There's a moment. And I can't remember at all what the original dialogue was. Not one word of it. But there's a point where you tell Bruce something and Bruce reacts. He sort of recoils in horror. And I had the hardest time coming up with something for Bruce to say that would fit like the emotion and the body language that was going on in that. Uh And so I just had Bruce say he couldn't take the princess out on the date because he hates girls. (laughs) 
And that sort of became Bruce's signature line because it comes uh, up once or twice throughout the movie that Bruce hates girls. So that, there, that's there my another, that. There was another funny line in there about uh, what's she into? Wedding bills and lots of kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember those scenes, you know, in the <clears throat> last episode of the, of the podcast, I talked to Matt about that one scene in the bar at the Geological Institute where we were <laughs> yeah, just... Right. We were firing on all cylinders. We had our timing down. We were playing off each other. It really worked. And I and I feel the same way about there are a couple of key scenes between Bruce and you, the police chief, that came across the same way. God knows how many times we taped and retaped oh, yeah. those scenes. I'm sure it was a lot. I don't think we ever got anything right the first try. Not even close. But yeah, I remember those scenes as the scenes between Bruce and the police chief as being pretty seamless. Our timing was down. We were riffing off each other, or it seemed that way. Yeah. And and there was some there was some pretty funny stuff in there. Okay, Bruce, you can quit showing off for the guns. Looks like the princess won't be showing up. What? I already reserved the lanes at the bowling alley. Well, I'm afraid she lost in the tenth frame. Oh, what happened? Well, the royal airplane just blew up. Sabotage, I'm afraid. Sabotage? Something like that couldn't have happened by accident. Yes, it's Crazy Murray. The Cutlery King? Yeah, he'd been trying to sell her some steak knives. She refused. You mean she wouldn't buy a set of his steak knives, so he went out and had her blown up, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Well, he must be doing really lousy business. Bruce never does get to spend uh, the weekend with the princess, sadly enough. Um, yeah. Another thing that I realized is there are a lot of references in that movie that I still use, and I had no idea that that's where they came from. Like we had, um, we have a cemetery in the old house in Sheboygan. We had a cemetery down the street where we would walk our dog nearly every night. And I would go down there with our youngest son, Finn. And in the winter, they would plow the streets or the little lanes in the cemetery and have these big piles of snow. And he would climb them. And I always referred to them as Mount Clabunda. <laughs> and then I'm watching the movie and Mount Clabunda's in the movie. And I was like, where the hell? I got that from this movie? Actually, that that goes back even further. And that's a good segue into the next thing we're going to talk about. Okay. Because you also helped me out a great deal with two other movies that I was making with my my fr- my high school friend John Cashed. And right. Yeah, one of them was the Beast of Timberline Lodge. It was really it, that was uh, outside of the Godzilla movie. That was my most ambitious film project ever. That was it, big. No. It was it was big, <clears throat> and it was you, me, and John. Mm-hmm. And John had a neighbor. John's family had a neighbor um, who uh, who shoveled their driveway in the wintertime, and his name was Marv Clabunda. <laughs> and so in the Beast of Timberline Lodge, oh, yeah, it might not have been Marv, but it was something like that. And in the Beast of Timberline Lodge, um, obviously, it's, it takes place at a ski resort, and the ski resort is on Mount Clabunda. Okay. Well, so, now, what a tangled web. Now, now it all comes together. Yep. All the threads, all the um, threads yeah. come together. So, wow. so, yeah. So that's where mm. Mount Clabunda came from. And it was so good. We used it in two movies. And that's, so that's what our, that's what our movie was about. And we filmed it at John's house, at John Cash's house, because they had, they had better scenery 
if I recall. They had better scenery at their house that we yeah. we could sort of pass it off as a a mountain snow lodge. Yeah. And you did the theme song for that movie, and we can't remember the theme song. I know, and you've asked me about this now for a couple of weeks as we've been talking about doing this, and I just cannot remember it. But I, I now have a theory. Um, I think I remember in the movie that I'm killed with a ski pole through my eye. Yes. Okay. So I suspect that that caused some brain damage, and maybe those memory receptors just are gone. <laughs> that just got a little too real, so, huh? Too real. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. A ski pole through the eye. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty gory. I think we did a pretty good makeup job with that. Uh, yeah. As I remember it, I think we just shot you from the side. So yeah. you didn't actually see the puncture wound. Yeah. And I think, and I, I, and I have a, I also have a feeling that John Cash played a, a Boy Scout leader, a scout master. Does that ring any bells? I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, it could be. I, I, I don't remember much of the storyline, unfortunately. Well, there wasn't much of one. But another one of the three movies that you helped out with, Dave, was one that it was a very ambitious production. We never really got anywhere with it. The Invasion of the Mind Suckers, our blatant ripoff of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, classic sci-fi film. We, sh you know, we shot a couple of rolls of film for, for uh, Invasion of the Mind Suckers, and it was literally aliens that would stick a drinking straw in your head and and suck your brains out with a drinking straw i don't remember how we made that happen on camera but i have very very few memories the thing is though okay so this is funny now beast of timberline lodge um i lost that many many years ago and i'll tell that story in another episode mm -hmm. of the podcast i don't want to give too much away but i lost no. the the <clears throat> one and only print of beast of timberline lodge but for some some reason i still have like the unedited uh, scenes from Invasion of the Mind Suckers. I still have those. Oh, yeah. John, John, uh, John visited a couple of years ago, and I I pulled out the movie projector and showed those to him. He was laughing his head off. Oh, man, I would yeah. love to see those. Well, maybe someday we can do that. Yeah, I I still have like three or four, maybe more reels of film that we shot for Invasion of the Mind Suckers. Uh, yeah, good times. Well, I remember a lot of laughing because you and John were a good, uh, good comedy duo. And I remember it being quite fun and quite goofy. And I just remember a lot of laughing. And in fact, I think I was probably laughing in the scene where I had the ski, ski <laughs> through my eye. I was supposed to be dead. I was probably laughing. I, that could very well be. I, yeah. I wish I remembered more about that stuff. I wish I still had the movie because it would be pretty hilarious. No, and I wish I remembered that song because I would love to figure that out. But I just, I have no memory of it. Well, okay. So just for listeners, my brother Dave is a very prolific songwriter. How many songs, how many songs would you say you have written in your life? I know it's a oh, lot. A lot. I just did a tally the other day and I, I didn't do a count, but there are a lot. Now that doesn't mean they're all good. <laughs> means, just means that I've written a lot of songs. A, a percentage of them are reasonably good, but well, uh, they're a lot. Yeah, that's it's that, something I'm interested in, and I just do as a hobby. Well, that, every writer can say that same thing. Now, I mean, that's going to be a part of this 
podcast going on is I'm going to be talking about some of my awful, awful scripts that I wrote early (laughs) on. Well, that kind of covers everything I wanted to talk to you about, Dave. Is there anything else you fondly remember or not so fondly remember well, from you? You did talk to Matt about the tarantula movie, <clears throat> and I don't. I don't know that I was part of that, but I remember being around when that was happening, and being, uh, you know, scared to death of the spider when it was loose. <laughs> I just did not like that thing, um, but I remember just the, uh, you know, our we had such a rinky-dink ho train layout that it you know it wasn't a layout like you'd see in a magazine or made by retired guys it was definitely a layout made by young boys with you know like the sidewalks were stapled onto the homosote i think <laughs> uh, the buildings were whatever was on sale at drew's or wherever we would buy the whatever hobby shop we were at but i i just remember you filming on the on the board of the of the train layout and you know the tarantula stalking through the little ho town <laughs> plastic fill usa and as i remember the only way we could get the tarantula to move because the tarantula didn't like moving so at this i do remember we would put the tarantula down on the train set hoping to get a really spectacular shot of the you know tarantula advancing on the, the town and he wouldn't move he just sat there so I did a little research and found, you know, because I'm sure I got a little booklet at the pet store, you and your tarantula. And I remember looking through that and finding that you could just blow a little bit of air on the hind end of the tarantula and that would get him to walk forward. Oh. The trouble was, if you blew a little too hard, the tarantula would take off like a shot. And that was scary. That I remember. I, I do remember him getting loose a couple of times. He had a name, by the way. His name was Lyle. Lyle, yeah, Lyle, yeah. We named him after the clerk at the pet store who sold sold <laughs> And I'm sure we were telling this guy Lyle at the pet store like exactly what our plans were for the tarantula. I'm surprised he even you know let us buy it. Yeah, because it could have been cruel and unusual. ASPCA, right? Yeah, after really. So, I've got anyway, some dresses for you. So yeah, I just have this vivid memory of once or twice blowing a little too hard on Lyle's ass and Lyle just taking off like a shot across the train board and scaring the living crap out of all of us. You do not want a tarantula loose in your house. It ceases to become a yeah. pet at that point. Yeah. That's freaky. Yeah, it's no longer a pet. It's it's a problem. And I can remember one time and here and the thing is we kept it in a glass terrarium. Um, and the glass terrarium had a metal lid on the top mm-hmm. and we put rocks on the metal lid to keep the tarantula from muscling out, uh, his way out of the cave. And he still did it somehow with rocks on that roof. He still managed to shove the roof aside enough to get out of the damn terrarium and, and go on a rampage. He was, he was pumping iron out in the prison yard. <laughs> he was man, man, that tarantula was yeah. nothing but trouble. Yeah. I don't whatever, know whatever happened to him. I was going to say, I don't know whatever became of him. And it's, it's probably just as well. Probably still walking around in that house. Probably. Or at least his ghost is. I do remember one of the times he got loose in one of the bedrooms. I think it might've been our bedroom. <laughs> and I remember pulling the bed out from the wall and there was Lyle on the wall right next to the bed. So uh, whoever, whoever would have gone to bed in that bed that night yeah. would have been in for a big surprise. Well, I do. Um, one thing I would just add is um, you talked about it in one of the episodes with Matt is that the fact that you kind of picked up on dad's uh, filming interests 
none of the rest of us did. Um, but in retrospect, I think it was quite cool that you did. And, you know, and just reminiscing about these things, just remembering the amount of effort <laughs> that you put into them, that this was not just, uh, you know, this wasn't just goofing around. This was something that you were taking fairly seriously. I mean, it was, they were for the most part, silly movies, but, but you were taking the silliness seriously, you know, and the, and understanding, um, you know, the, the technology and the, uh, the management of the film and splicing and, you know, syncing up uh, audio tracks and things. And yeah, it's pretty impressive to think that you were pushing through that stuff as a pretty young kid. And uh, so anyway, I, I'm impressed that you were doing that and obviously was part of your pathway. It has been, you know, it's linked to your pathway in film and, and story creation and writing narratives and all that sort of thing. It's, all part of the pathway for you, but yeah, it's pretty impressive to think that you, you took that on and, and, uh, and really excelled at it. Well, I appreciate that, Dave. Like you said yeah. before, it would definitely was a labor of love, Yeah. but here's something about the Godzilla movie that you may, I don't know if you ever knew this, maybe you did, maybe you'll remember this, that Godzilla movie that we redubbed got me my first professional script writing job. Really? Did you know that? Yeah. No. Well, here's how it happened. So after, you know, months or years or however long it took to complete that project, redubbing that Godzilla movie, I, um, you know, my ambitions were never really went m much further than, you know, just showing it to family and friends and making, making a few people laugh. Mm -hmm. But at that time, there was a TV show on late Sunday nights on Channel 18, the independent TV station in Milwaukee. And it was these two guys who owned a video production company in, in Milwaukee, but they, they somehow or other um, got airtime on this independent Steve TV station for late Sunday nights to show goofy old horror and science fiction movies and make fun of them. So it was, it was a prehistoric mystery science theater. Oh, yeah. I mean, literally that's exactly what these guys were doing, except as I recall, they weren't anywhere near as funny as Joel and the robots on Mr. <laughs> science theater, but you know, they were doing their best. They had their moments. So they yeah. would show things like Godzilla movies and they would just make fun of the movies and basically at the end of the show, just plug their video production company. And that was that. Well, I thought if anybody outside my family and my circle of friends is going to appreciate this Godzilla movie, it'll be these guys. So I got in touch with them and I managed to persuade them to, to sit down for a screening of the Godzilla movie. They watched the whole thing all it's, it's about an hour and a half long. Wow. They watched the whole thing. And I can't remember if it was that same day or if this came up a couple days later, but, but shortly after viewing the Godzilla movie, these guys approached me and said, Hey, we'd like to offer you a job writing a script for one of our video productions. And I said, okay, I'm in. Well, it turned out they had been hired by the family of this prominent lawyer in Milwaukee. Oh. Yeah, it's coming back to you. Yes. Well, I remember the film. Yeah. The yeah. So he was he was very rich, very well known, very powerful in in the city of Milwaukee, and he was celebrating his like I think his seventy fifth birthday, and his family were going to throw a gigantic party for him, 
and they wanted they wanted to surprise him with a video about his life. <laughs> Except there was one catch. They insisted that the video had to be funny. And these guys told me, they said, Mark, we cannot figure out how to make this guy funny. <laughs> there's there's absolutely nothing <laughs> funny about this man. We are really stuck because they're expecting us to make something funny. And they said, we figure if you could make Godzilla funny, you can make this guy funny. So I took up the challenge and I wrote a, I wrote a script. I think it was a 15 or 20 minute video. It was, it was a really elaborate production. They, they had a pretty decent budget to shoot this video. And the, the approach I took was I, I just had a narrator um, with a really sort of stuffy, pompous voice bragging about everything that this attorney had done in his life. But the, but the narrator would always just go way, way, way too far. And he would start making shit up that was absolutely unbelievable that this lawyer had accomplished. And, and then he would sort of reach a crescendo with all of this. And then the voice would be like, oh, uh, well, okay. He, he didn't do some of that stuff, you know. <laughs> it was a really simple formula and it worked. Everybody was really pleased. And if I remember right... They paid me about two thousand dollars, I think, for that script. Wow. Which, you know, wow. at the time, that was that was pretty good money. It didn't quite pay for the Godzilla movie, but yeah, but it was it was not bad. And that was my first. So that was my first uh, video script writing job. I mean, that was just a one shot. It was a freelance job. But then that freelance job led directly to my first salaried position as a video producer and writer so that all happened because of godzilla can you believe that all right cool dave no, this is fun it was thanks for thanks for joining the show i really appreciate it well that about wraps it up for this episode of far-fetched but before i go there are a couple more things i want to share from the godzilla movie there are two moments in particular that kind of sum up the the thinking behind the movie and and I think have a few things to say about our modern world. It's a message picture after all. The first clip is uh, Bunny Toyota, after giving her mother and her brother a fairly graphic description of her sex life with Dr. Ken, the geologist, uh, she has this to say. Dr. Ken says the only two things that matter in this crazy world are rocks and sex. Now, later in the movie, when the three earthly monsters, Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra, all decide to set aside their differences and join forces to fight off Ghidra, the monster from space, Bruce Toyota has this observation. You know, these monsters create a good metaphor for international conflict. Mm. And I can't leave it just there. This is the closing scene of the movie. The monsters have been victorious. The princess has her memory back. Bruce and Bunny are all good. Things are great between Bunny and Dr. Ken. And we join all our characters at the Tokyo airport as Princess Blincess is preparing to fly back to her home country. Well, Princess Blincess, do you have anything to say to the viewers back home? Oh, yes, I was wondering. Did I really say that I was a communist from outer space? <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. That's why these people brought you to my clinic. I see. But what about my gunshot wounds? You're a very lucky princess. The bullets went right through your head. But it missed your brain by a mile. Hey, <coughs> I bow to your princessness. I thank you for this weekend, Bruce. We really had some good laughs, didn't we? Yeah. 
You remember? Mm-hmm. You wanted to show me a good time. But I thought I was a communist. And all I really wanted was to go bowling. You mean... You mean you like to go bowling? Mm-hmm. I haven't signed up for a spring league yet. But I... But I bowl a 300. Holy shit. Yes. Strike the bowling now. I think I love you. You love me? But I hate girls. Oh, well. Oh, Bunny. I think I love you, too. And I hate girls, too. Oh, well. You blew that one. Yeah. You've been listening to Far-Fetched. Thank you for listening, and a double thank you for putting up with the atrocious audio quality of my Godzilla movie. If you'd like to reach me, I'm on Twitter, at MarkO'Connell underscore one. That's at M-A-R-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L, all lowercase, underscore one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>